today on Heritage Hunters. It's a video that, as it was captured, was seemingly mundane and stands today as the single most important physical or digital artifact I have in my possession. We come to the realization that there's a good chance that my children will never meet either of their grandparents. We realize that we cannot afford to lose her stories. So we took out our phones and we set out to record some of what we anticipated might be her best stories. We had no idea where to begin though. We were looking at what had just become a rich tapestry of my mom's life that we realized was only just beginning to unfold. The inspiration for Romento is to bring an experience that changed my life into the lives of others by making it as simple as possible to take the time to capture the stories of those we care most about. Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. today's episode of Heritage Hunters, we're joined by app developer Charlie Green, who tells us about his new app, Remento. Later on in the episode, we're joined by Joy Neighbors of the Indiana Genealogical Society. I just wanted to start out by saying thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply humbled by the opportunity to be here. I just wanted to share that since since I knew this was happening, I've had an opportunity to listen to a bunch of your episodes and the work that you're doing and the light that you're bringing to individual genealogists, I think is so inspiring. This morning on my drive, I was listening to the Gen Z episode and it was just so refreshing to hear young people who, when we think about genealogists, I think often are not the group that we think of first, to see young people who are so excited about making this their life's work, but aren't wasting any time really awesome to see that level of passion, the kind of passion that you expect of all genealogists, but particularly coming from the next generation. So I just wanted to just share what is real, being really impressed from my perspective with the work that you're doing. And again, I'm just honored to be able to be a part of this. The inspiration for what we're building with Romento is as personal as it gets. I had the tremendous benefit of growing up in a household with two parents who were absolutely enamored with the home video camcorder. 
I'm a child of the 90s, which meant that about six weeks before I was born, my dad actually went out and bought one of the first home video camcorders, one of the first that you could actually hold in your hand. It really took about a hand and a half to keep that thing up. But once it was taken out of its bag, he would use it to record so many of the amazing moments from my early childhood, births, birthdays, recitals, graduations. In fact, the day that I was born, we have over a full hour of video content, <laughs> right? Which is just absolutely remarkable when you think about the day that I was born being only 24 hours long, a full hour of which is on video. Growing up, it was always special to know that he was capturing that content, but our family really did not come to understand just how meaningful that content was until he passed away just after my 10th birthday. It was in the process of digitizing that content as a 12-year-old that I came to appreciate just how much of a gift it was that he had left us. What was really interesting is as we went through the process of watching that video, specifically that hour of my birth, I was really, I remember as a 12-year-old being really blown away by what I was most drawn to in that video. It was certainly wonderful to see my dad holding me in his arms for the first time. What a gift to have that on video. But actually the video that I was more drawn to as a 12-year-old and am more drawn to today then him holding me in his arms for the first time is him sitting at the breakfast table before he and my mom left for the hospital. He's looking directly into the camera and he's explaining to my mom how nervous he is to drive home from the hospital with a brand new baby buckled up in the backseat of the car. It's a video that as it was captured was seemingly mundane and stands today as the single most important physical or digital artifact I have in my possession. So I grew up with a deep understanding of the importance of long-form video content uh, and being able to hear my dad's voice. Flash forward 15 years after we lost my dad, my mom, who raised my sister and I, is diagnosed with stage three lung cancer. We come to the realization that there's a good chance that my children will never meet either of their grandparents. We realize that we cannot afford to lose her stories, right? So we took out our phones and we set out to record some of what we anticipated might be her best stories. We had no idea where to begin though. Absolutely no idea where to begin. I rented every book I could find on oral history interviewing. I learned the tips and tricks. I Google searched for questions to ask a parent literally before they die. And we started to pull together some photos and family heirlooms that we could find in scrapbooks and around the home. And then we sat down with my iPhone and we started recording her as we asked questions and shared photos. And what followed absolutely blew us away, right? We were successful in creating video that would forever preserve the stories of her life. But what was absolutely mesmerizing was how much we learned by taking time to pause and ask basic foundational questions of someone we thought we knew absolutely everything about. It turns out we knew almost nothing. 
And at a time that was so difficult for our family, just after her cancer diagnosis, it was the experience of capturing her photos that actually brought us closer together than I ever could have imagined. Now, it was a remarkable experience, but what followed was in many respects equally as remarkable. We took those videos, we chopped them up into individual stories, and we put those stories onto a microsite. And what happened next when we shared that microsite with her family and friends was absolutely extraordinary. We were immediately inundated with photos and videos and maps and music and written reflections and questions coming in, all of which sought to add dimension or clarify things that my mom had shared in her stories. So here we were looking at what had just become a rich tapestry of my mom's life that we realized was only just beginning to unfold. From Friday, October 7th through Saturday, October 8th, 2022, the Minnesota Genealogical Society is hosting their 15th annual North Star Genealogy Conference, America's Tapestry, featuring Nika Sewell-Smith and Billy Stone Fogarty. The conference has 23 breakout sessions for beginning to advanced family history enthusiasts. Please visit mngs.org for additional information, registration, and membership. So you asked at the beginning, what was the inspiration for Romento? The inspiration for Romento is to bring an experience that changed my life into the lives of others by making it as simple as possible to take the time to capture the stories of those we care most about. It looks so like it's a great app just from the little bit that I've gotten to play with it. And it's easy and it just walks you through everything and some of the things I really appreciate you saying that we have been building the app. So I should say the Romento app does a couple of things, but primarily is focused on making it easier than ever to get started with your first conversation with a loved one. And what the app does is it leverages a network that we've been very fortunate to assemble of neuroscientists, of family historians of psychologists and storytelling experts who have crafted every step of the new user experience to be able to bring out not only the best in you as the user of the app, but also the best in the person that you're going to sit down with, a parent, a grandparent, an extended family member, a loved one, or perhaps someone you just met. The idea being that taking the time to pause and reflect in the presence of someone else, it doesn't have to be hard or scary. So many of us, unfortunately, wait, in some cases, tragically, until just after it's too late to ask these questions. And that is a tremendous shame and one that we think technology is better positioned than ever to help us solve. We think about what social media exists as in the just give me one second here. What we're trying to do with this app is make it as easy as possible 
to get started with your first conversation. We've done a tremendous amount of research into why it is more of us don't make the time to have these kinds of conversations. And what we come to realize is that for many folks, it's because they wouldn't know how to begin. They wouldn't know what to ask. They might be intimidated by the prospect of having to learn how to edit it. And if they did take the time to edit it, they wouldn't know what to do with it and how to share it. And I was that person several years ago. And for our family, we went through the hard work of solving it. And what we realized on the other side was not only was it not nearly as difficult as we thought it might be, but it proved to be outrageously more meaningful than we ever could have imagined. So what we've done with our app is we've taken out any of the guesswork associated with how to start. We've worked with experts to increase your odds of it being meaningful to create. And we have the benefit of hindsight to tell you with conviction that if you go on a journey similar to the one that we went on, it will change your relationship with the person that you're speaking with. And I guarantee it will change your life. Each session begins with a photo. The app is designed to be dynamic. What we have done is we've worked with experts to provide recommendations of how to have a conversation with every member of your family. And what in the app, we call them prompts. And prompts can be all sorts of different things designed to inspire the sharing of meaningful stories. Our app supports questions that are designed by our experts, designed to elicit stories about childhood or early years, teenage years, career, education. We also have the ability to upload photos so that people can share stories about specific images that are meaningful, wedding photos, graduation photos of the mundane, or the photos that we have questions about that we don't know the context of. And the app also supports being able to take an image directly on your phone. So for the fair family heirloom that's sitting in, your, in the corner of your home that you've never taken the time to learn about, it's as easy as snapping a photo. And whether it's a photo of an heirloom, a wedding picture, or one of our questions, each of these prompts is displayed directly on the phone, right? The phone becomes the conversation facilitator, both providing a roadmap for what you're going to talk about and also recording the experience. One of the things we spend a lot of time thinking about is how what we are doing complements the work that for so many years genealogies have carried the burden of, which is fundamentally to answer this existential question of who am I and where do I come from, which creates an opportunity to go on an amazing journey that can provide tremendous dividends for future generations. But any genealogist will tell you provides them with amazing satisfaction with every record they find and document they uncover and connection that gets made. What a gift it is to go on that journey. And as we think and look at the world of genealogy, we recognize that there's so much to be learned about the artifacts that can tell us about where our loved ones from the past were at specific moments in time and who they were with. We also see an amazing opportunity, opportunity to be able to capture the stories the behind. Story. We see an amazing opportunity to be able to capture the stories that run true to all of the moments that are captured in those documents and records and photos that can be found in a library or an archive. So at Remento, we feel squarely that the passion that we have seen within the genealogy community can be channeled 
into furthering our understanding of who we are and where we come from by taking the time to listen to the people that are still capable of telling their stories. There is so much richness to be learned from the people that we call our nearest and dearest. And all we have to do is ask. So this is nice because it gives you all those little prompts and says, hey, ask this and then maybe upload a picture, or do anything and can lead you right down that hallway. Yeah. One, one of the things that we've learned as we have spoken with experts in the fields of oral history and psychology and people who work specifically with recall for individuals who have cognitive impairments, Alzheimer's and dementia specifically, is that asking meaningful, thoughtful questions is as much of an art as it is a science. But it's not a particularly different, difficult science to learn, right? It is a science, but the key insight to asking good questions is twofold. The first is to make the questions specific. One of the best questions in our arsenal is, can you tell me about your childhood bedroom? It's specific, it's visual, it's connected to a point of time, and it's generally something that hasn't often been talked about within the family. And the second thing that's true about that question is it's simple. It's just a couple of words. And whether it's a podcast or a family history interview, so many of us are compelled to ask long-winded, intellectually sophisticated questions that never seem to find the question mark and just linger and go on forever. And in reality, the best questions are the well-timed why. Can you tell me about how that made you feel? What was going through your head at that moment? Can you tell me more? Or the best question of all, a pause. We find that pauses are an incredibly effective way of drawing out interesting and meaningful stories. The app is designed to give you the benefit of no longer being able to say, I wouldn't know how to begin because we make it pretty clear about how to get started. And we are optimistic and hopeful that folks will take advantage of the opportunity to do something that so many of us say we would love to do if we had the time and the energy to dedicate towards building out a program for doing it. Now, with our app, the hope is that without that excuse, you're willing to commit 30 minutes or an hour for your first conversation, try it out, and to see if we're right. That if you try out this experience, it will teach you something new and begin you on a journey of learning something in a way that can fundamentally change your understanding of and relationship to the person you're speaking with. On Saturday, October 8th, 2022, the Afro-American Genealogical and Historical Society of Chicago is hosting their 40th annual Family History Conference, Treasure Chest of Genealogical Jewels. Speakers include Dr. Deborah Abbott, Ahmed Johnson, James R. Morgan III, and Robin Smith. Please visit aaghsc.org for additional information, registration, and membership.
who and doesn't have their what, phone with them anymore? So if you have the app with their phone, exactly. you can just pull it out. And what made you choose to start with the Apple format versus the Android format? Is it just simply popularity, reaching more people? It's a multifaceted decision that was made. At the end of the day, uh, we had to make a decision about what platform to start with. If you look globally, Android is much more popular, but in the US, it's not quite as skewed. So the goal is to be able to release on both platforms. What we as an early stage business are trying to do, though, is to learn as quickly as possible about how we can be meaningful and valuable to our users and to be able to build a product in a way that it can respond to that feedback. So the more different services that you build for at the same time, the slower you're able to take forward steps. So our idea has always been that we'll start with a narrow focus in terms of the kinds of people that might find our product most valuable and the number of services that they'll be able to do to be able to find that value. But once we ultimately find that we've arrived at a product that we suspect and have data to prove resonates with people, then we will scale the way we think about making it available to more people. And candidly, we think we're close. The early feedback from folks who have tried this app is much less about the app, right? It's much more about the conversation. It's much more about the connection that forms. We are in the business of bringing families together. And to be perfectly candid, our goal is to do just that. And if our app can be a helpful tool in incentivizing you to do that and making that feel less intimidating, we want to be able to support you through that journey. Love it. I absolutely love it. It's interesting. I think, I think Hope, you mentioned, I think Hope, it was you that mentioned like, who doesn't have their phone with us anymore? And that's something that's so true. How many photos do we all take on a daily basis about the moments that pass us by? When my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I looked down on my phone and I had 28,000 photos and 1,700 videos. What a gift to live in the digital age. And yet, and yet, I wasn't able to find a single video of her that was longer than 12 seconds. My phone recommends important memories to me all the time, but rarely do those actually reflect anything about the person that they feature that I really want to carry forward. So the digital age has been a double-edged sword for us. We capture more than we ever did. But so many folks that I speak with long for the days of the scrapbook that gets printed from the disposable camera photos that curated the moments in life as they unfolded because we just simply weren't able to capture that many of them. So when the camera came out, it meant that it was important. So being able to cultivate and curate meaning in the digital age, that's something that's really hard to do. And we believe that fundamentally when we look back on a life lived in the future or in hundreds of years from now, when our offspring are doing genealogy projects about us, they'll have access to more content from the 21st century, probably than they'll know what to do with. But if they had access to the storytelling that gave meaning to those moments, what a gift it would be to understand who we were and how we lived through these crazy times. We look specifically at the pandemic about how much has changed within our society, within our families, and for each of ourselves over the last two years. What a gift it would be if you were able to hear the way you were thinking about the pandemic in March of 2020 today. 
what a what an interesting experience that would be. And yet we rarely take the time to do just that. So we're trying to get into the habit as a team of getting people to take the time to pause and reflect on conversations and moments and memories that are worthy of remembering. Because once we've got them and once those memories can serve as a vehicle for further exploration and discovery, so it's a real gift. Right now, the app is available for anyone with an iPhone on the Apple App Store. The way the app works is video is recorded directly to your Remento app. And once it's on the app, it can be exported directly to your camera library. So you can imagine taking out your phone and recording a video of someone looking at photographs and then having a video that captured their face, but no photos. And what our app allows you to do is be able to export the photos and the video into a composite video that brings both of those pieces of media into the same frame. So the app allows you to export a deliverable that connects those two things. And it does so in a way where that resulting export is shareable anywhere in the world. You can share that to your cloud backup service of choice, whether that's Google, whether that's Apple, whether it's Dropbox, you can send that to a friend directly. And then in the future, what we'll be building into our app is the capability to invite someone that you care about, who you'd like to see the content that you recorded to download the Remento app and to be able to see the content that you've recorded directly in their app. So right now we're focused specifically on getting people to capture this content and then in mm-hmm. short order and soon after on our product roadmap, we'll be beat building sharing and collaboration tools that will allow the family to get to come together within Remento and share and comment and build on the foundation of these incredibly rich stories. One of the things that we're having to break down for people is the humility that often gets in the way of people making the time to do this kind of thing. There's humility that exists on both sides, which is interesting. We find, and this is all from the research that we found, we found that storytellers, the people that are speaking, don't want to appear as bragging, as being braggy or oversharing. They find modesty in saying, my story can't be important enough for commemoration and sharing. And then there's also modesty on the part of the interviewer who doesn't want to come off as prying or exploring areas that she or he doesn't think that they have permission to explore. We have to take the humility and the modesty and just get rid of it. Because once you do, the storyteller realizes that it is an incredible gift to arm the interviewer with an understanding of their life story. And the interviewer learns there are few gifts greater than the gift of genuine interest and curiosity in you, right? So we have to think through the way that we can break down those barriers and get people sharing and coming together to promote understanding in a way that, as we spoke about, our technology is well positioned to help us with. Well, Charlie, it sounds absolutely amazing. I can already think of the multitude of interviews I would be doing because every time that we get together with our family, we could we could certainly interview them, which would be amazing. We feel so privileged and fortunate to be in a position where we can hopefully build technology for good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think our team has been reflecting on that. The fact that social media in the 21st century is a lot of media and not very much social. Right. 
social media and our technology had this promise of connecting the world and bringing us together. And I think the jury is out on whether it has actually done that. So we are laser focused on building technology that doesn't serve as a substitute for our most cherished relationships, but ultimately serves as a complement to the relationships that we have with those that we love and can actually strengthen the connection that we have to these individuals. So it's a gift to be building what we're building. It's a gift to be in a position to hopefully bring experiences like the one that changed my relationship with my mom and the way I see the world into the lives of others. And it's incredibly exciting to see that with the folks that have tried the app so far, they're finding the experience to be just as meaningful as we all have. Saturday, October 15th, 2022, the Bucks County Genealogical Society is hosting their 16th annual ancestry fair, Compendium, Pennsylvania Records and Research. Michael Lacopo will lead off with an overview of Pennsylvania history and genealogical research. Sydney Cruz will present two lectures, one on Pennsylvania Vital Records and another on Pennsylvania Database Treasures. Jerry Smith will cover Pennsylvania Land Records please visit www.ancestryfair.org for additional information, registration, and membership. widely used resources for genealogy are census records. In the United States, the federal government has taken a census of the population every 10 years since 1790. Today, the census records are available on popular websites such as Ancestry.com and FamilySearch.org from 1790 through 1950. Census records provide a composition of family places of residence, approximate dates of birth, the number of children of a mother, marriage dates, immigration dates, and much, much more. For the years 1790 through 1840, only the heads of households were named, and other individuals in the household were represented as tick marks. Although it is difficult to draw firm conclusions about a family unit from these records, they are valuable in that they locate a family unit and even their migration patterns. From 1850 to 1870, all individuals were listed in the household, along with their ages, race, and the place of birth. Ownership of land is an indication that land records should be available. In 1870, a second enumeration was taken due to allegations of errors in the original enumeration. The 1880 census marks the first time that a good picture of the family unit was shown since it included the relationship of each person in the household to the head of that household. It also provided the birthplace of the individual's parents. The 1890 census is a gap year in the United States. A fire in 1921 destroyed most of the 1890 population census with only fragments remaining. Areas that survived include parts of Alabama, Washington DC, Georgia, Illinois, 
Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, South Dakota, and Texas. The 1900 through 1950 censuses include ever-expanding information for the genealogist. Records after 1950 are sealed for privacy for 72 years, the average lifespan of an individual. The 1960 census will not be available to the public until 2032. From 1850 through 1880, the federal government also conducted other population censuses. From 1850 through 1880, federal mortality schedules enumerated persons who died during the previous 12 months. Slave schedules were enumerations of slaves from 1850 through 1860. Native American schedules were taken in the 1900 and 1910. The 1890 schedule of Union veterans and widows was a special census that was taken. However, only half of the schedules for Kentucky and the states alphabetically from Louisiana through Wyoming remain. Non-population schedules include schedules for agriculture, manufacturing, industry, and social statistics. In 1880, there was a supplemental schedule taken for the insane, deaf mutes, the blind, homeless children, prisoners, and the indigent. Various states also conducted their own censuses. They were often taken every 10 years, in years ending with five, to offset the federal census. For a comprehensive list of states and the years they took a census, please visit State Censuses in the United States at wikipedia.org. Population censuses are not limited to the United States. Nearly every country in the world enumerates the population, and many of these documents are available on popular websites such as Ancestry.com and FamilySearch.org. For more information about the United States federal censuses, please visit the National Archives at www.archives.gov or pick up William Dollarhide's The Census Book, available at Amazon.com also available is Dollarhide's Substitutes for the Lost 1890 U.S. Federal Census. Sunday, October 16th through Friday, October 28th, 2022, the Illinois State Genealogical Society is presenting their fall conference, Mid-Century to Modern. Featured speakers include LaDonna Garner, Laura Kovarik, and Julia Johannes. Please visit ilgensoc.org for additional information, registration, and membership. This evening, we have Joy Neighbors joining us from the Indiana Genealogical Society. Welcome, Joy. Thank you so much. I have been the editor of the Indiana Genealogical Journal now for just over a year. We had a bit of a hiatus in 2018, and then we had COVID, and so we came back last fall. 
And this has just been such an amazing time to start talking again about Indiana ancestors and looking up different ways to go through your family history. Just to give you a little bit of information about the Indiana Genealogical Society, we formed in 1989. We do have a web page. We are undergoing some changes. So if you go on there in the next couple of months, you're going to see things are shifting around, but it's all for the good. You can go on to indgensoc.org, and that will get you into there, and that will be our website even after we do our changes. We have databases, actually at least 10, for all 92 counties in the state. And there's a total of about 2,200 databases in all right now. And we are continually adding to that. Just to give you an idea, we have college records, military records. We also have county records, records that basically relate to IGS. Also, all around, excuse me, all around the state, we have some free databases, and we also have the premium databases. Now, if you would like to get access to the premium, what you need to do is join. And to become a member, you're basically going to get the S Journal, that comes out four times a year. You're going to get the newsletter, which comes out six times a year. And we also have the Indiana News Monthly, which is an email that's free to everyone. You can also check out our Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter. So we are really spreading out now and getting more into social media. And we're able to stay in touch with our members and people who are more interested in Hoosier history that way. It's just $30 a year to be a member. And there's so much information that is phenomenal. If you have Hoosier ancestors, my people came to Indiana before it was a state. So they came in the very early 1800s. And I have found this to be a wealth of information in pulling my genealogy together and getting more, more history and getting an idea also who to contact in the counties that my ancestors lived in and traveled through. So you'll find people more than willing to help you out on this. A question that we get a lot, if you are not from Indiana and you hear someone referred to as a Hoosier, they wanna know what is a Hoosier? And honestly, um, nobody really knows where this came from. I grew up learning that it was the settlers and if someone knocked on the door, they would say, Hoosier which they blurred into Hoosier. It's been actually the earliest known uses found in 1827 in letters. In 1835, Sarah Harvey, who was a Quaker who lived in Richmond, Indiana, wrote a letter to her family saying that the old settlers in Indiana are called Hoosiers and the cabins they live in are Hoosier nests. And then, in 1848, Bartlett's Dictionary of Americanism defined Hoosier as a nickname given to natives of the state of Indiana. So we have carried that moniker almost since the state actually came into existence, which was in 1819, or the 19th state. So it's pretty cool. There are only five states that have a different name for their residents than they do for the state. Illinois would be Illinoisan, and Kentucky is Kentuckians, and 
Five states don't use that. We don't go by Indianans. We're Hoosiers. And Connecticut is known as nutmeggers. Massachusetts are Bay Staters. New Hampshire is the Granite Stater. And Ohio, where I've lived there too, are Buckeyes. So just a few of us are a little more individual, I guess you could say, than some of the others or unique or whatever your word is for that. To also, again, talking about the membership, I want to go back and touch on that one more time. The emails that you're going to get are going to be full of information, not only about the state and about the events that are currently going on, but it's also going to give you a little bit of a feel, different cultural aspects of Indiana and what it does mean to be a Hoosier. I am the editor of the Indiana Genealogical Journal, and we're focusing on articles about Indiana family history. We're looking at Hoosier culture, transcriptions, abstractions, case studies, even take book reviews if they're about the state of Indiana, photos, and any research techniques that you might want to share. And again, we are published four times a year. That is in March, June, September, and December. So that means the deadline for each issue is the 15th of the month before the publication comes out. So that would be February, May, August, and November. When I started a year ago, we wanted to do something that would attract more readers and it would attract more people to send us articles and information. So we came up with a theme for each issue. Now we had this going through our winter issue, which is the next one coming up. And then we're going to get together and we're going to put together some more different themes. So if anyone out there has an idea for a theme or something that they're wanting to do some research on with an Indiana ancestor, please feel free to send that in. Would love to see that. What we have been doing in autumn of 2021, we looked at Hoosiers and war. And amazingly, it was almost all civil war. That was a great way to kick that back off again and bring our readers back on board. Thursday, October 20th, 2022, American Ancestors is presenting Verifying Descent from Salem's Accused Witches by David Allen Lambert. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of court cases and accusations of witchcraft across colonial America, yet the most famous series of prosecutions from this period are the Salem Witch Trials between 1692 and 1693. In that short period, more than 200 were accused 30 found guilty and 20 executed. In this online lecture, Chief Genealogist David Allen Lambert will discuss how to verify your lineage from someone accused of witchcraft in Salem during the hysteria. He will point you to key records, resources, and references for proving your line of descent. Please visit AmericanAncestors.org for additional information, registration, and membership. The 
winter theme we had was basically about Indiana newspapers. If you had a relative who ran a newspaper or you had a family member who ended up in the newspaper a lot, we had articles on things like that about those. Spring was about Hoosiers and their communities. And that could be your work community, your religious community, the community you lived in. And those were also very, very interesting. Now, summer we dealt with the Civilian Conservation Corps and the WPA, the Works Progress Administration in Indiana. And that was one that was really close to my heart. I had my grandfather worked for the WPA in the 1930s when we had the Great Depression. And he had a wife and two young daughters to support and there were no jobs. They were in Vincennes, Indiana. And Franklin Roosevelt, our president, actually opened up the WPA and they decided to build a bridge in Vincennes to cross the Wabash River and that was linking Indiana to Illinois. And my grandfather was hired as a WPA worker to work on that bridge. And I never ever crossed that bridge with them without him telling me the story of going in and getting that job and how that made it possible for him to actually buy a piece of land and for him and my grandmother to build a house out of concrete blocks that was four rooms where they could raise their two daughters. And he was so proud of that. And when you look at what good that program did and the CCC all over this country, it's amazing of the inroads, the state parks and things we have because of those two organizations. So I really enjoyed reading the articles of people remembering their families bringing different things up and just remembering people coming into the community and they were staying in tents when they worked on the CCC and they helped build those parks. And it was really a fun read to find um, how these young kids in their 18s, their early 20s, who would come in and pitch a tent and they would all work together until they got that section of land cleared and then they would build the stone lodges. And it was just amazing how they put all of this into building our Indiana State Parks. And not only Indiana, they did it all over the country. So what that did for people, for their well-being, for their financial lives, and the self-esteem that it gave those families was just tremendous. And I just wrapped up editing the autumn edition, and we looked at religion in Indiana. Indiana is, I believe, 15th in the country as one of the most religious states. And 72% of Hoosiers claim Protestant as their religion. Of course, that breaks out. We are the home of the headquarters of the Methodist religion and also the Wesleyan religion. We have a lot of interesting archives here too. If you have families who were in those branches of Protestantism that you can come in and you can really start digging or you can get hold of them, there's a lot of information online that you can pull from too. When I was doing the research, we are the third largest state in the country for Amish. 
And where I'm living right now in South Central Indiana, I'm about an hour away from an Amish community. And it is so interesting that they are very polite, but not necessarily approachable. And I have always wondered if you have Amish in your background, how do you trace that back? Just now getting a lot of information about that, about how you can start finding out how to trace that. There are a lot of Amish and Mennonite families and ancestors, especially in Southern Indiana and Northern Indiana. That is another form of looking at the religions and finding ways, which I covered in the journal, different websites that you can go on and find this. And it will help you get more information so that you can find out we have records from all over the state. We have a very large civil war for Indiana, and that ties into, we have two of the lineage societies for Hoosier ancestors. One is basically for the Society of Civil War Families of Indiana. If you're an IGS member and you have a direct descendant, someone who served in an Indiana Civil War Union military or naval unit, or who lived in the state, they may have joined a non-Indiana Union unit. You can apply for membership to the Society of Civil War Families. All you have to do is fill out the application. You have to have documentation to prove that your ancestor did serve or did live in the state at the time. A governing committee is going to then review that application now our Civil War resources, some are members only, and a lot of them are open to the public. The Indiana Civil War Veterans with Artificial Limbs, which I did not even know existed, is a database that is just for our members. We have the Civil War Indiana site. We have Civil War resources at the Indiana State Archives, which can give you information when you're tracing that way. Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System, the Indiana Soldiers and Sailors Children's Homes records. And then, of course, you can go to the National Archives and then order forms for your Indiana military records. We also have another lineage society, and that is the Territorial Guard Society of Indiana. So again, if you have an ancestor who lived within the boundaries of present-day Indiana, and that's on or before December 11, 1816, which is the date that Indiana became a state. Part of your family history is the history of the locations of your ancestors. Think of how these world events had an impact on small towns and the lives of your ancestors. October Events in History October 1, 1908, Henry Ford's Model T, a universal car designed for the masses, went on sale for the first time. October 2, 1967, Thurgood Marshall was sworn in as the first African-American Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He served until 1991 and was known for opposing discrimination and the death penalty and for championing free speech and civil liberties. October 3, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation designating the last Thursday in November as Thanksgiving Day. October 4, 1582, 
the Gregorian calendar took effect in Catholic countries as Pope Gregory XIII issued a decree stating the day following Thursday, October 4th, 1582 would be Friday, October 15th, 1582, correcting a 10-day error accumulated by the Julian calendar. Britain and the American colonies adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1752. October 5th, 1813, Shawnee Indian Chief Tecumseh was defeated and killed during the War of 1812. Regarded as one of the greatest American Indians, he was a powerful orator who defended his people against white settlement. When the War of 1812 broke out, he joined the British as a Brigadier General and was killed at the Battle of the Thames in Ontario. October 7, 1765, the Stamp Act Congress convened in New York City with representatives from nine colonies meeting in protest to the British Stamp Act, which imposed the first direct tax by the British Crown upon the American colonies. October 8, 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago erupted. According to legend, it started when Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in her barn on DeCoven Street. Over 300 persons were killed and 90,000 were left homeless as the fire leveled 3.5 square miles, destroying 17,450 buildings. Financial losses totaled over $200 million. October 12, 1492. After a 33-day voyage, Christopher Columbus made his first landfall in the New World in the Bahamas. He named the first land sighted as El Salvador, claiming it in the name of the Spanish crown. Columbus was seeking a western sea route from Europe to Asia and believed he had found an island of the Indies. He thus called the first island natives he met Indians. October 13, 1775, the United States Navy was born after the Second Continental Congress authorized the acquisition of a fleet of ships. October 17, 1777. During the American Revolutionary War, British General John Burgoyne and his entire army of 5,700 men surrendered to American General Horatio Gates after the Battle of Saratoga, the first big American victory. October 19, 1781. As their band played The World Turned Upside Down, the British Army marched out in formation and surrendered to the Americans at Yorktown, more than 7,000 British and Hessian troops, led by British General Lord Cornwallis, surrendered to General George Washington. The war between Britain and its American colonies was effectively ended. The final peace treaty was signed in Paris on September 3, 1783. October 20, 1818. The U.S. and Britain agreed to set the U.S.-Canadian border at the 49th parallel. October 21, 1879, Thomas Edison successfully tested an electric incandescent lamp with a carbonized filament at his laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey, keeping it lit for over 13 hours. October 24, 1861, the first transcontinental telegram in America was sent from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., addressed to President Abraham Lincoln from the Chief Justice of California. October 26, 1825, the Erie Canal opened as the first major man-made waterway in America, linking Lake Erie with the Hudson River, bypassing the British-controlled Lower St. Lawrence. The canal cost over $7 million, which is about $209 million today, and it took eight years to complete. October 27, 1787, 
the first of 85 Federalist Papers appeared in print in a New York City newspaper. The essays argued for the adoption of the new U.S. Constitution. They were written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. October 27, 1904. The New York City subway began operating, running from City Hall to West 145th Street, the first underground and underwater rail system in the world. October 28, 1886, the Statue of Liberty was dedicated on Bedloe's Island in New York Harbor. The statue was a gift from the people of France commemorating the French-American alliance during the American Revolutionary War. Designed by Frederick Auguste Bartholdi, the entire structure stands 300 feet tall. The pedestal contains the words, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. October 28, 1919. Prohibition began in the United States with the passage of the National Prohibition Act by Congress. Sales of drinks containing more than one half of one percent of alcohol became illegal. Called a noble experiment by Herbert Hoover, prohibition lasts nearly 14 years and became highly profitable for organized crime, which manufactured and sold liquor in saloons called speakeasies. October 29, 1929, the stock market crashed as over 16 million shares were dumped amid tumbling prices. The Great Depression followed in America, lasting until the outbreak of World War II. Friday, October 21st, 2022, the Virginia Genealogical Society is presenting their fall conference. Lectures include research logs, documentation, research reports, writing, women, African-American research, and mapping. Please visit www.vgs.org for additional information, registration, and membership. for joining us today on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production recorded and mixed by me, Barbara May. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their genealogical experiences and personal stories. Be sure to visit us on our webpage, heritage-hunters.com, and our many social media pages such as Facebook, Twitter, Locals, and more. Please leave us a review, like our page, and follow us to be sure to never miss our show. If you'd like to be on the show or have an idea for an upcoming episode, please email us at 2heritage.hunters at gmail.com. And that's the number 2, heritage.hunters at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember to like and subscribe to our podcast. We hope you'll join us next month on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production.